Awesome. Well, guys, we're going to jump in to the message, and uh, I need to turn off my notifications here and get my iPad uh, behaving with me. Bear with me. Sorry, it's not, it's not obeying me. It's, uh, there we go. Okay. You can't see what I see, but basically it won't let me access my notes. This is fun. Technical difficulties on live stream. Okay, here we go. And we did it. Yes. Awesome. Thank you for bearing with me. So we've been in a series called War of the Worldviews, talking about worldviews and the difference there and why worldviews really matter. And I've given an introduction to this series series really in every message. And so I'm going to kind of jump in today because I have a lot to cover. But if you want to get the background on what we've been talking about, I encourage you to go back and watch these messages. And really, if you haven't seen all of the messages in this uh, series, I would encourage you to take that time, go to YouTube and look those messages up. Not because I think, man, I'm so wise and you need to hear what I have to say. No, not that at all. Uh, But because of the heart from which this message is given, you know, the goal with this series is really to help Christians think and believe and act like Christians. And for any person that's not a follower of Jesus, not a Christian, to really be able to see what do Christians actually believe. You see, there are a lot of people that reject Christianity for absolutely the wrong reasons. You see, if somebody intellectually, honestly explores the Christian faith and, and has problems with it, I'm more than happy to sit and have, answer questions. And there are people that I know that maybe have rejected faith for various reasons that I find to be intellectually valuable or viable. But there are so many more people who simply reject the Christian faith for reasons that are really not viable. Um, And I'm going to talk about some of those reasons, you know, just dismissively rejecting it based on uh, caricatures and things like that. And so I encourage you to watch this series and go back through the messages. We've talked about the three fundamental questions, what is real, what is true, what is right. And as you know, we've been kind of camped for the past couple of weeks, and we're going to remain here on the question of truth, because in our day and age, the truth question is so very valuable. We talked about Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman uh, prefect or governor of Judea, and Jesus was brought before him. And Pontius was talking to Jesus. He said, are you a king? Uh, Are you, uh, uh, who are you? And Jesus said, no, I've come into the world to testify of truth. And Pilate sort of famously, Pontius Pilate, he sort of uh, famously quips, and he says, well, what is truth? Kind of dismisses it. And what we find is that When we have a low view of truth, uh, when truth falls, justice fails. And that's what happens. It happened 2,000 years ago in that scenario where Pontius Pilate was willing to be complicit, even though he he knew Jesus was innocent. He tries to actually get him out and tries to have the the people there release, uh, release Jesus, but they won't. But Pilate goes along with it. He has Jesus flogged and he has him crucified. There's a great act of injustice on the, the, the most perfect and innocent person ever to live on this planet, Jesus Christ, is actually crucified. Now, we're glad because he died for our sins and he saved us, but the actual act was an act of injustice. And how did that happen? It happened because Pilate didn't really care about truth. He cared about politics, power, prestige, position, and all of that. And so he says, what is truth, right? It's just a moving target. What does that really matter? And when truth falls, justice fails. And that's the reality in life. And so we've been talking about truth. And last uh, Sunday, last message we went over, I talked about two ways that we as Christian people engage with and discover truth. One is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, and really the preeminent uh, way that we, we understand truth, is through propositional revelation. Okay, Propositions are statements that are either true or false. So propositional revelation are revealed statements, and really that's a fancy way of saying the Bible. 
the Holy Scriptures. We, that is the foundation of our truth. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, he says, you need to be faithful to my teachings. You need to build your life on my teachings and follow them. It's like someone who builds their life on the rock. That is what it looks like to be a Christian. And it, and it really means to live our life and see the, pro, the primary determiner of truth to be the scriptures, not our feelings, not culture, not what's popular or unpopular, whatever that may be. Culture is going to change. Philosophies change. Uh, even religions go through changes in their expression, but the word of God is forever. It remains the same. And so scripture is the ultimate arbiter of truth for us as followers of Christ. And so that is one of the things that I really want to talk about and that leads me to my topic for today, a message called, What's the Deal with the Bible? Because if we are believing and, and affirming Scripture and a high view of Scripture as the way that we sort of determine truth, it's the way we dial in our radio in the midst of this noisy world of ideas, to talk about the bewildering blizzard of ideas. Sounds like a flavor at Dairy Queen, doesn't it? The bewildering, bewildering blizzard, it sounds delicious. You can turn it upside down and it doesn't even fall out of the cup. Come on, in Jesus' name. Uh, of ideas and propositions and worldviews and, and values and ethics and all this kind of stuff, confusion. The scripture is how we dial in the radio to, to, to narrow in on truth and how we build our life. And it undergirds so much of what the Christian faith is. Now, why do people reject the Bible? I think for a lot of people in culture, it's easy to sort of be dismissive of scripture and just see, see it as an irrelevant ancient document full of contradictions, problems, it's fantasy, all that. Now, to be fair, and I, I want to be a little bit humorous here um, and, and talk about this, that when you actually look at the Bible at face value, if you sort of remove the religiousness, the component of that, especially if you're a Christian and you have kind of a, a sanctimonious view of Scripture, as I do, okay, so I'm not saying that I don't, but, but if, you, if you look at it just with, with, with eyes that haven't necessarily been educated about it or illuminated, this is, listen, I mean, it starts off with two naked people and a talking snake. That's the beginning, Right? Uh, then you have this stuff about angels making giant babies. That's in there. It's in Genesis 6. It's one of my favorite things to talk about, for those of you that know me. Then you have a worldwide flood. Then you have this guy, Noah, who is in the flood. He decides to plant a vineyard just to get drunk. Some of you are like, man, I want to read this book. We've got nudity. We've got violence. We've got drunkenness. This is better than going to the bar on Saturday night. Yeah, man, get into Joy Church. Get into the scriptures. So then God sends his people, like the people that are faithful, like his people, his church, right? He, Israel, he sends them into slavery for 400 years. <laughs> Thanks, God. You know, no wonder they were grumpy in the desert, right? They get out and they're like, gosh, that was a long uh, ordeal. And that's just the second book. Then you go into these, all these history books and weird stuff's going on, fights and wars and Israel, this nation that God's working with. They're just messing up over and over again in every conceivable way possible. You read the book of Judges and you're like, people came up with new ways to do weird stuff. You think it's weird today? People are getting chopped in pieces back then. I mean, it's weird stuff. Okay. Then you get to the New Testament and Jesus' disciples, the people that he hand selects to be like the apostles, right? The, to carry the gospel. They're just messing up in every way and getting it wrong. Jesus even calls one of his own disciples Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan, when Peter says something stupid. Okay, and so you go, man, then you get to the end of the Bible. So we started with two naked people and a snake. You get to the very end, and it's the book of Revelations, and nobody knows what that book means. If you find a Christian who's like, I know exactly what Revelations means, they're not being honest. They don't know. They're, they're full of pride. They don't know. It's apocryphal. It, it's, 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 very, uh, it's very interesting. Okay, now you go, man, Jake, it sounds like you're tearing the Bible down. No, I'm absolutely not. I'm just saying we need to be honest that for many people— 
looking into this document with all these stories that to us are very different to our modern kind of mindset and our worldview today can be very intimidating and at best and then at worst it can be very it can be dismissive like i'm just going to throw that out because it's just irrelevant it's just this fairy tale book so let's talk about this why should thinking people in the 21st century accept the bible as truth and accept the bible uh, as authoritative in the area of determining truth number one Belief in the Bible comes as a natural byproduct of belief in an infinite personal God, a God that communicates. So this is something that I think is important to understand is that we've talked about every worldview has to answer these three questions. What is real? What is true? What is right? We haven't covered the third one yet. We've just kind of mentioned it. But what is real? The nature of ultimate reality. As a Christian, I believe that there are two levels of reality. You have the natural world that we can see, taste, touch, right? It's the five empirical senses, the physical reality but I believe in a supernatural and above the natural world, what we might call the spiritual world, the realm of God, of angels, of demons, a supernatural world. And, and, and that, is not an, that is not an anti-intellectual position. Now, we could talk all day about the actual scientific and reasonable explanations, and I went into some of them in the message about what is real, but the reality is everyone has to answer this question. Why is there something rather than nothing? And we have to explain the physical universe and people that aren't even Christians accept that there is a potential at least for there to be a supernatural world as the explanation for the physical natural world around us. But when we talk about the Bible going into this truth question, because Christians believe in a creative, intelligent designer who is a communicator, it is not a stretch to believe that that highly intelligent, highly interactive being decided to give us propositional revelation. In other words, statements about himself, about, about ourselves, about human beings, and about life and what it looks like to live life in this universe we call home. It's not a stretch to believe that this infinite personal God actually inscripturated or wrote down or, or made it possible for this revelation to be given to us in a form that we call scriptures or the Bible. Okay, so that's what we're talking about it matters. And there's so many reasons we could talk about why God would choose to do it this way. If he just chose to do it in an oral tradition, passing that down, then you're playing telephone, things are getting messed up. But what we actually look at is that the, the scriptures were literally recorded at the time that they, that they were given as revelation by God, and they were meticulously copied and kept through the generations. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, because there's a whole scientific pursuit of that, and even a whole movement of people that for the past few hundred years have been trying to poke holes and sink the ship of biblical authority and the, and the accuracy of the manuscripts, and they failed because it's literally so well-documented. So we'll talk more about that. Before we do, though, let's talk about what the Bible is not, okay? Because this is where, again, some of these caricatures, misnomers, mistaken ideas come into play. People have these ideas about the Bible, and here's what it is not. It's not, number one, it's not a book of rules, okay? It's not a rule book. One of the like really popular Christianese kind of cutesy bumper stickery Christian statements is, "What is the Bible? It's basic instructions before leaving Earth." Okay, sure. It's really sort of dumbing it down, but it's the, people take it this way. It's like, well, the Bible's the rule book. Like this, you know, I got the good book, never going to get shook. Okay, I I don't read the nudie naughty book. I read the goody gaudy book. You know, you have these kind of fun Christian statements. All right, so that's 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 fun. So. But people have this mistaken idea. They think, man, the Bible is just telling me all the stuff I can't do. Okay, well, yeah, there are moral imperatives in Scripture. And yes, the Bible establishes an ethical framework for life. Absolutely, it does. But it's really not about control. It's about freedom and flourishing 
because it's like more like reading, you get a brand new car and you read the owner's manual to understand how you read, how you operate it. The Bible gives us, and again, I don't want to oversimplify, but it gives us the owner's manual, okay, the basic instructions before leaving earth, and we just landed back on it. It gives you a framework by which to see how you can flourish as a human being. And I don't have time to go into all of that, but every rule in the Bible is establishing a freedom on the other side. For instance, when God says, do not murder, that's a rule. It's sort of an authoritative rule. Jesus takes it one step further. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, don't even hate your brother in your heart. Why are those rules there? And you go, man, well, I really, I stand for my right to murder. No, you don't. But we stand for our right to life. We don't want to be murdered. Like that rule creates a freedom. It creates an exclusion where a, a human being has the right to not get murdered. Because the rule giver said, this is the rule. Don't murder other people. Don't commit adultery. Meaning, keep your hands on your own boo. Come on, somebody. All right. So, it's not a book of rules. There are rules, but that's not, it's not the point. Okay? It's, it, number two, it's not a book of myths or fairy tales. This is a really common mistaken concept of Scripture. The Bible actually purports to be historical when the genre calls for it. So, not everything in the Bible's history, because some of the writing is meant to be poetic right? But where it is historical narrative, it purports to be historical. And this is where we need to be careful of our presuppositions. Now, a presupposition is something you believe a priori before the evidence. It's something you've accepted as a first fact or principle that you are then using as a lens to color how you deal with later particulars. That's a lot of P's in that sentence there. And people have presuppositions. Many challenges to the historicity of the scriptures are based in uh, an anti-supernatural presupposition. I've quoted uh, the, the late, great Carl Sagan. He was a natural philosopher, scientist. He said, the cosmos is all there, is all there, was and all there ever will be. The cosmos, right? The universe, the physical, empirical world. It's all there is, ever was, ever will be. He had a presupposition that anything that was supernatural was by definition impossible. Therefore, anything in scripture that appears to be supernatural must be a myth or fairy tale. But it's not evidentially proven that these things did not take place. The miracles, the, the, the events, like the parting of the Red Sea, we actually do not know that they did not take place or that they did take place based on the matter of presupposition. It has to do with your worldview, okay? And do you accept the potential or possibility that there are supernatural events in the world? If so, what we see in Scripture could absolutely be historical, and I believe that, okay? Because I accept the foundation of a supernatural world. So the Bible is not a, a book of myths or fairy tales. Number three, it's not a textbook. And this is something that I think for Christians we need to understand. It's full of history, it's full of science, and it's full of philosophy, but it wasn't written as a textbook on any of these topics. Last week I talked about the fact that the Bible doesn't tell you the boiling point of water. There's no verse, you know, first hesitations to four. No, there's no scripture verse that says water boils at such and such a temperature at this at, at, at sea level. It's not there. You're not going to find it. And yet some people want to affirm, well, the scripture tells us everything we need to know about the world. No, it doesn't. The, the Bible doesn't teach you how to drive. They didn't have cars, right? I had one guy on Facebook getting mad because we're doing online church and he was like, this isn't biblical. And I wanted to reply, you're absolutely right because there was no internet in the Bible times. <laughs> it's not biblical, but it's not anti-biblical or unbiblical, right? Because the Bible isn't a textbook. It's not describing every single thing that might or maybe or could happen in the world at all times forever. It's not what it is. It gives us a framework 
by which, for instance, it doesn't tell us that water boils at a certain temperature, but it does give us a reason why water boils at a certain temperature, which is that there's an intelligent designer behind the whole show, okay? So that's important to understand. All right, so what, what, what the Bible is, let's look at it. Let's look at that. Not what it's not now, but what it is. Number one, the Bible is a book. And you're like, wow, that's why I go to Joy Church <laughs> for the profundity. Okay, the Bible is a book. It's, it's more, but it's not less. And here's what I mean when I say it's a book. It's literature of many different genres. Listen to what John Lennox said. He's a professor of science at Oxford University. He said, it would be a pity if in a desire, rightly, to treat the Bible as more than a book, we ended up treating it as less than a book by not permitting it the range and use of language, order, and figures of speech that are or ought to be familiar to us from our ordinary experience of conversation and reading. In other words, he's saying you've got to read the Bible as a book and allow it to speak to us and illuminate us as a book would illuminate us. So when we read a book, we have a particular set of lenses that we are reading through, looking for things like the language that it's written in, the, the intent of the author, for idioms, for uh, turns of phrases, for uh, the, the, the difference in genre. So when you read a poetry book, it's different than when you read a his history book, and hopefully you know the difference, and we need to read the Bible in that way. Okay, so the Bible is a book. It's literature, and we need to treat it like that, not less than that, but not more than that, but it's more than that in that it's a holy book, but it is literature. It has genres and all of that. Number two, the Bible is a story. So many people don't realize this. The Bible is made up of a bunch of individual books, but there's actually a narrative. There is a, a, an arc through scriptures uh, there's creation when God shows up and creates everything, the fall of man, then we have redemption in Christ, and then ultimately resurrection and restoration. But the Bible is really a story primarily about our need for Jesus, because what we see is that God had a good world that got broken because of human sin. Jesus came into the picture. He was necessary. A lot of the Old Testament explains why Jesus was necessary. It pre- uh, figures that. And then when Jesus comes from there on out, it's how do we know him? How do we connect with him? How do we understand the gospel? Number three, the Bible is truth. And this is what we're talking about, that it is God's word. It's authoritative in our lives as it reveals God to us, but also reveals the way the world actually is, including in the area of science, in logic, and in morality, most importantly, uh, or at least um, the most consequential to our lives. See, one of the things that is very painful to me is to watch Christians try to wade through the moral morass of our society and, and sort of, it's like their feet are hanging in, in, in thin air and they're not able to like anchor what they believe and why and these ethical impulses that they're feeling to the, the real truth. You see, there's actually a scripture, we're going to talk about this in a future message, where the, Paul talks about lies so clever they sound like truth. It's like lies dressed up in clever uh, they sound true. They feel true. They're truish, And a lot of Christians sort of are, are like buying into these type of lies. And if they simply had a biblically grounded worldview, they would see through that and recognize, man, this is not, this is not true. And the main thing that for us as Christians we want to get to is we want to build our lives on the scripture as the ultimate determiner of truth. Because otherwise, you are picking something else. You're picking your own feelings. You're picking culture. You're picking someone else, another human, and you're keying off of them. And I want to affirm that we, as followers of Christ, really put our, our truth foundation on Scripture. If it's in the Scripture and the Scripture uh, gives it to us, and even if we don't like it, if it doesn't fit culture, Scripture trumps culture. Okay, I know you're amening right now. I can't hear you, but, but you are. So the Bible and I already talked about this, is propositional revelation. It's either true or false. It's verifiable, falsifiable. And the Bible gives us these statements of truth that are either true or false, 
And what we find as followers of Jesus and anyone that with intellectual honesty will lean into the scriptures is that we can actually test and see that the propositions of scripture are sound, both logically, intellectually, and existentially as we live them out in our lives day to day. So why do Christians believe and trust the Bible? Hopefully you're with me. Uh, We're getting a lot of content into a short time here today. Why do Christians believe and trust the Bible. Number one, it can be tested and it passes the test. Anything scientific must be verifiable and falsifiable. In other words, you can prove it right or you can prove it wrong based on the, the normative understanding of how we, we operate according to the principles that we have at that time, uh, whether that be in history or, or whatever. So a couple of the things I'm going to go through. History, okay? So the Bible is testable, verifiable, falsifiable in history. Now, this is interesting because the foundation of Christianity is uniquely rooted in history. Unlike any other religion, Christianity depends on key historical events. In other words, we tie the validity of our faith and religion to historical events. We don't just tie it to, oh, I believe it, so it's true for me no matter what, even if it's proven false. That's not Christianity. Christianity, going back to the Apostle John, when he says, we touched him, talking about Jesus, we, we touched him with our own hands, we saw him with our own eyes, he was here, the one we knew, and we proclaim him to you. It was all about history for them, all about reality. Listen to what Dr. William Lane Craig says. He says, Christianity is not a code for living or a philosophy of religion. Rather, it is rooted in real events of history. The reason it's scandalous is because it ties up the truth of Christianity with the truth of those historical facts. This means that if these historical events are shown to be fraudulent or fictional, then the whole basis of Christianity is removed. And to put it as simply as possible, he says, the truth or falsity of Christianity stands or falls within, with individual events within history. So the historical reality of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, it's absolutely core, it's critical to the truth of our faith. If Jesus didn't actually live, if he didn't actually die on the cross, and if he didn't actually, most importantly, rise from the dead, then we have no faith. We have nothing to build our lives upon. Everything I've just talked about, what is real, what is true, what is right, there's no foundation. We tie it to history, which is scandalous because if you could prove, you could get Jesus' bones, you prove that it's all wrong. And all of the hundreds of billions and millions of Christians throughout time have just been duped. Okay? You see why it's scandalous? But there's also something very refreshing about that because Christianity does not hide. As a worldview, as a religion, it does not hide from scrutiny. It does not hide from examination in the area of history. Early Christians fully believed and affirmed the historical reality of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And they even died for it. This is what's amazing to me. I did a a study one time where I looked at all of the disciples that Jesus had and and different early Christians uh, that were um, of note and of record. And many and most of them, if not all of them, were martyred for their faith, literally 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, um, even, that they, they were literally put to a place where it's like, hey, we're going to torture you and we're going to kill you unless you renounce your faith, and they would not do it. Why? Because they knew Jesus. It's like saying, well, you didn't really know that person. No, we did know him. Well, he didn't really rise from the dead. Yeah, he did because we saw him die. We saw him alive, right? They just, they knew it was true. Therefore, they were willing to give their life for it. Uh, absolutely amazing. Another piece of verifiable and falsifiable evidence or another topic is the bibliographic evidence referring to the quality, the quantity, and the recency of manuscripts. Okay? So when we talk about the Bible, I don't have one with me. I have my uh, digital version here, but 
Um, we have a Bible, and many people are like, oh, you know, I read the Bible, Jesus and Paul read the King James Version. No, they were not reading that. They didn't have books, okay? They had scrolls, right? So all of the scriptures from the time in history when they were inscripturated, when they were written, were written down on parchment, you know, papyrus, canvas, the different things, animal skins. They were written in scrolls. They were gathered together, and they were written as individual books. You had, and, and even some of the books were compiled from different writings, but, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they were brought together and, and compiled together. And the, the document that we call the Bible wasn't fully brought together, though it was fully in use at these times in the various churches in the, in the Greco-Roman world. But it wasn't fully brought together until a few hundred years uh, into the ADs, okay? But there was a council where they go, man, what are the Holy Scriptures? And they brought them together. But all of the Bible, okay, it wasn't, you didn't go down to a Christian bookstore uh, in Paul, Paul's day and age and buy a Bible. You didn't get, I want the NLT with gold letter, put my name in gold letters, this is from grandma. No, that's not what it was like. They're scrolls, they're manuscripts. So when we look at ancient documents, we have to apply the same lens to how we deal with any ancient historical document. Now, what's crazy about this, and this is where a lot of people just, they don't understand. They're like, oh, the Bible has just been corrupted. It's, it, what we have now is not you know, what it was then. Because you read the Da Vinci Code, you think you're a bibliographic scholar. Well, you're not. So um, it, it's corrupted, and you know, there's all these books, and the Catholic Church did this, and the, the, the Protestants did this. Okay, no, 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 no. When, 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 this, when you go to an actual scientific study of the bibliographic evidence, there is an, a, a literal mountain almost stretching to the moon, of manuscripts, actual physical documents of the scriptures that cross-reference and build this absolutely uh, unshakable picture of accuracy of these manuscripts. And I'm just saying there are so many copies, okay? The number of copies. For instance, scholars point out, this is from Mark Clark's book, The Problem of God, Scholars point out that if we compare the number of New Testament manuscripts to other writings in antiquity that we accept as historically accurate, we find that it is the most trustworthy set of documents in the entire ancient world. For instance, Thucydides, hopefully I said that right, he lived from 460 to 365 BC and he wrote extensively about Greco-Roman culture. Most scholars trust what Thucydides reported in his writings as historically accurate. Now, of Thucydides' writings, we have in existence eight copies of them, the earliest, transcribed 1,300 years after the events of which he wrote. How many of you have heard of Aristotle? Aristotle, we have five copies of his poetics, dated 1,400 years after the originals. Caesar, Julius Caesar, we have his uh, Gallic Wars, describe events that occurred in 58 BC, and the few manuscripts scholars have are from 1,000 years after his death. And he goes on and on and on about all these different things, that these, these documents that we take as full history, full fact, fully true, Historians trust they're historically accurate. What about the New Testament? Well, believe it or not, there aren't two, there aren't four, there aren't eight, there aren't 200. There are 25,000 at the time of this writing, 25,000 copies of the New Testament documents in existence. This is the greatest number of manuscripts by far of any writing of its kind from the ancient world, and it's not close. So when you spout off something like, oh, well, you know, it's just it's been corrupted over time, like, no, you're missing something here. God was behind this. This is literally supernatural in its, in its demonstration of how stable and how many manuscripts we have. But not just the quantity. What about the quality and the recency? Well, the New Testament was written as early as 15 to 20 years after the life of Jesus. So we're talking about in the lifetime of eyewitnesses. 
So I want you to think about this, that many people right now, if it's, it, right now as we're going through this message, it's 2020, which means go back to September 9-11th. If you are under 19 years old or if you're 18 years old, you were not alive on September 2011. September 11th, 2001. There we go. Thank you. I had to get all these numbers. I get 9-11 and it all. It's not 2011. Okay, forgive me for that. All right. But go back to that day and raise your hand, even on live stream, if you were alive at that time. Okay, I was alive. And how many of you remember exactly what was going on? So if I come on camera and I'm like, hey, remember 9-11 when, when uh, Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan, when they uh, sent their t- submarines and they sunk our battleships? You're like, what? Well, no, <laughs> it was planes and it was the World Trade Center. Because eyewitness accounts, when a significant event happens in the world, you remember that. It sticks with you. So when you're talking 1,400 years, 1,500 years, a lot can get lost. When you're talking 30 years, 20 years, 15 years, it's too close. And these eyewitnesses that were saying, we saw Jesus, we knew him, we talked to him, this is what he said, this is what he did, and wrote that down. very recent. Um, Going into archaeology, I won't go into that, but I'll just read you this quote from Dr. Nelson Gluick because he has an awesome name. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Never. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible, and by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical description has often led to amazing discoveries. This is something I actually studied in college. I studied biblical archaeology, and it was fascinating to go through uh, archaeologists who were searching for biblical events or cities or things in certain places, and they couldn't find it because they had a wrong thought about it or whatever. When they went to the scripture and they found the right place name or whatever, and a lot of that's been lost to time and history, but when they found it, they'd go, man, oh, it's right here where the scripture says it was. Uh, Other times when they thought that the Bible had just totally messed it up, they dug a little deeper and found out, oh, we were just at the wrong time, and we found actually what the scripture talks about here. It's an inexact science. So you hear somebody say, well, archaeology is like this totally stable thing. No, there's a lot of leeway there, but but what Dr. Gluick is saying is that there's never been a contravention. There's never been any archaeological thing that just directly dis- disproves something in Scripture. Then you go to documentary analysis, where you check the internal consistency, and the Bible passes the test there. Now, I don't have time to go into all of that. I'm going to skip it, but it is part of this, number one, this whole thing that the Bible can be tested, and it passes the test. Scientifically, if you're somebody who likes evidence, study the scripture and study the manuscripts and study the history and study the archaeology because what you'll find is that it's an incredibly well-validated and backed-up historical document. Number two, though, why do Christians accept the Bible is that it's intellectually viable. The Bible gives us propositional truth, statements of truth about the big questions of life that every worldview wants to answer. We get a cogent and a cohesive worldview that answers the deep questions about origin, where do we come from, about truth, how do we know what is true and false, how do we have logic, how do we have, use reason at all, meaning, what is my place in the universe, what am I to do with my life, why, why do I exist, and then morality, how am I to live in relationship with the world around me and the people around me, uh, morality and ethics. The scriptures give us a very cohesive um, and cogent perspective of morality, and it's so wonderful. So it's intellectually viable. So why do people challenge the Bible on an intellectual level? What are some of the things? And I want to be fair because there are challenges to the scriptures. 
One of them is people say, what about the crazy stuff? So like miracles, which you've talked about, that's based in, if you have a super, a presupposition against the supernatural, you'll disbelieve in miracles. If you don't, if you can accept Genesis 1-1, that God created the heavens and the earth, then that same God who is miraculous or supernatural can actually do miracles. It's not really illogical. It's just based on the presupposition you accept about reality. But then the big one, I think, for people is really misunderstandings. Like, people will lift specific verses out of the Old Testament and be like, man, this God is weird. He's misogynistic. He's genocidal. He's about slavery and polygamy and all this. And how do we deal with this stuff? Because the Bible's raw. Like, I was joking about it, but if you go into the book of Judges, you see, like, a lot of raw stuff. And in the Old Testament, a lot of raw stuff. And to us, in our modern 21st century um, day and age, we at least believe we're more civilized. I actually would say we're, we're no more civilized than these times, but we have maybe dressed up a little nicer. Um, maybe not. But, um, but some of the stuff kind of comes across very shockingly to us. And it can even appear contradictory, even to Christians. But we have to actually elevate ourselves and look at the grand picture, the whole story of Scripture, and take this 10,000-foot view. And let me just say this. First, there's a really big difference between what God allows and what God affirms. Hear me on this. Because in the Bible, we don't read, again, every verse is not a normative command. Every verse is not an imperative. It's not like, hey, I read this verse, and in the book of Judges, they were cutting people up, so that means I'm supposed to cut people up because it's in the Bible. No, you're, you're, you're really missing it there because there's not a, that's not giving normative moral instruction. That is a, a, an account of what happened. And many times what we have in the Scripture are things that God allows, which are actually human beings screwing it up, messing it up. He allows it and does not immediately smite them, but it's very different than what he actually affirms. Okay? And so a lot of the stuff that we see that might feel problematic is, is allowed by God. It's not affirmed by God. And there's very different there, like polygamy. So people will say, well, Abraham had multiple wives and David had multiple wives and Solomon did. And we celebrate these people as heroes of faith. Yeah, but God explicitly said, don't have multiple wives. So they were living in disobedience, just like we do sometimes. Living in cognitive dissonance, just like we do sometimes. And here's a perfect God working with imperfect people. So he's allowing, but not affirming. Then we have the, the reality of what's called eisegesis, which is many times we read our time and our culture and our generation into a historical document and we pass ethical judgment without knowing what actually is taking place in the full picture, okay? And eisegetically reading scripture, what we'll do is look into things and go, man, this is like wonky and God's talking about this, but the reality is God is speaking into, an, again, an imperfect people group as they are progressing through their time and their season. And so we see things like slavery and polygamy and all these things in the Bible. And again, it's not God affirming it, even though he sometimes gives instructions about how you, this is what you do if you take slaves. But I want you to understand that, that God gives us his full moral bottom line in the person of Jesus Christ who says you are to love your neighbor as yourself, which is why a Christian can say, man, yeah, the, the ancient Israelites were doing all this stuff with slavery and polygamy and all this, not, not affirmed by God, allowed by God. But Jesus gives us the real picture, the full illumination of God's moral imperative. Okay, so that's a lot to say, but hopefully you'll pick some cherries out of that and enjoy them. Okay, and so when we look at some of these supposed contradictions or difficult passages, we've, we've got to take the whole Bible into account and recognize that God is working through a time and a season with a particular group of people who are imperfect and they're on a journey and on a process just like we are. And sometimes we're getting a lens into part of the mess, not part of the solution. But the solution is given in Christ. Okay? And that allows us to, to see the Bible for what it really is. 
Number three, why do Christians believe the Bible? Why do we accept it as truth? Because it is also practically and spiritually valuable. And what I mean by that is when you follow it, it works, right? How many of you sort of subscribe to the hit it and see if it'll come back on school of repair, right? That's me because that's the the level of my technical proficiency. If something breaks, I always hit it first because I found through experience that sometimes it works, right? And and so going through everything we've looked at, yeah, we want to know what we believe and why, and we want to know that, but when we actually live out what the Scripture teaches us, we find that it's viable and it actually works. And we live in a day and age where we are desperate for truth. Okay, that's what's happening right now. Not opinions, not perspectives. How many of you know we got plenty of those on social media? Everybody has one and they're an expert. Not just more noise. We need truth. We need authority to speak into the noise, something to anchor ourselves to. And this is what Jesus said. He said, he who listens to my teaching and does it is like a person who builds their house upon a rock. It stands in the storm. In Psalm 119, the psalmist writes these beautiful words. Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Yes, I have more insight than my teachers, for I am always thinking of your laws. I am even wiser than my elders, for I have kept your commandments. I have refused to walk on any evil path, so that I may remain obedient to your word. I have not turned away from your regulations, for you have taught me well. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. In a world of fake news, in a world of confusion, in the bewildering blizzard of opinions and ideas and facts, wouldn't it be nice to have truth that you can cling to and hold on to in the storm? That when the storm rages and when it's done, you're still there? That is what the scriptures are. They're a light, a lamp to guide our feet, a light for our path. The scripture gives us this lighthouse, this, this light in the, in the darkness of guidance that we can build our life upon. So if this book, if the Bible is actually God's word, right? If it's actually truth in the way I've been talking about it today, why aren't we tearing it open every day? Why don't we have a passion and a hunger? And you go, well, that's for Christian people if you're a person who's not a believer. No, actually the challenge is the same to you. If you what if I'm right? What if the scripture... What if the Bible is actually God trying to communicate with humans? Well, he knows where, my, where I live. Yeah, if God showed up at your house, there wouldn't be a house. So what if he does something to confound the, the wise of the world and in this way he presents revelation? Why aren't we desperate to understand and know it? So for both audiences here, how should we respond? Number one, if you're a believer... I want to challenge you with fresh passion and fresh commitment to devote yourself to studying and applying the word of God. We need a renewed commitment both to the Bible and to the study of the Bible. What most of us do is devotional reading. I read to feel good, to know God. That's great. But we need to go further and we need to know the Bible as truth. What are the propositions that are being made here and how do they, what are the implications for how we live and let the Bible be the arbiter of truth for us, that we build our view of truth on Scripture and we don't make our view of truth apply to the Scripture. Number two, if you're a skeptic, a second audience, if you're someone who's like, I'm not a believer, I'm just watching here, I got stuck in this message, my friend won't let me leave, whatever, wherever you're at right now, I want to challenge you to read the Gospels, 
Start in the book of Matthew. Read those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Form your own conclusions. Be an open-minded, intellectually honest person. Don't allow presuppositions to steal your opportunity to encounter the person of Jesus or the mockery or cynicism of others who themselves have not studied this in great detail. Get your questions answered. You have questions about the Bible? Ask them. Challenge. Turn over the stones. Because when you are intellectually honest and you chase after God, I guarantee you he's already chasing after you. You're going to find him. And so get your questions answered. Find out, is the Bible actually contradictory? Is it full of problems? Whatever. If you want a, a really good book on this, there's a book called New Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And I want to encourage you to read it because it has all the answers to these questions where you can say, man, I can actually look into the scripture and judge it for myself based on the stuff that I just shared with you today. So, Christians, let's, let's dig back into the word. Let's be committed. For anybody that's a skeptic or kind of leaning in or looking into faith, I want to encourage you to form your own conclusions through honest study. So why do we accept the Bible? It's propositional truth. It can be tested and it passes the test. It's intellectually viable and it's practically and spiritually valuable. Hey, as we get ready to close this morning, I want to invite you, if you're a person that is ready to put your faith and trust into Jesus, I want you to pray this prayer with me and then I want you to take one simple step I'm going to share with you in just a minute to engage in your journey of becoming a follower of Jesus. So if that's you and you're like, Pastor Jake, I want to put my trust and faith in Jesus. This is my day to trust in Jesus. Pray this prayer with me right now. Dear Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I know I've not lived up to your standard, but I thank you for your grace and mercy revealed to me at the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be right with you. I give you my life. I give you my heart. I put all my faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Hey, if you prayed that prayer today, I want you to send the word decided. Just text the word decided on your phone. Do it right now to 541-229-8848. Don't wait. Okay, if you made that decision, we want to help you take the next steps in your journey with Jesus and as a part of Joy Church. Okay, so we're going to help you. We won't spam you. We won't bug you, but we want to help you follow Jesus. So 541-229-8848, text the word decided. If you want to get more connected at Joy Church, just text the word home to that same number, 541 541- 229-8848. And right now we're going to go jump into connect groups. Come on, tear it up in there. Have some great discussions. JoyEugene.com slash live. We'll see you guys at Joy Church in the park, 630 Emerald Park. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.